So my nephew loves to read this book before bed. Has anyone read this before? It's the power. Yes. Oh, Bonnie, I'm so excited about this. Yes. Okay, cool. Because last night some people were like, the Pout Pout Fish. It's a New York Times bestseller. Did you know that? That's a thing for children's books. Well, if you haven't had the pleasure of reading it over and over, you've been saved from that fate. Don't worry, because right now we're going to do story time. So welcome to the Pout Pout Fish. Deep in the water where the fish hang out lives a glum, gloomy swimmer with an ever-present pout. I'm a pout-pout fish with a pout-pout face, so I spread the dreary wearies all over the place. Blub, blub, blub. That's my nephew's favorite part. (laughs) Along comes a clam with a wide winning grin and a pearl of advice for her pal to take in. Hey, Mr. Fish, with your crosstown frown, don't you think it's time to turn it upside down? Says the fish to his friend, nice thought, Miss Clam. I hear what you're saying. But it's just the way I am. I'm a pout-pout fish with a pout-pout face, so I spread the dreary wearies all over the place. Blub, blub, blub. (laughs) The story goes on like that for a few more pages, a few more friends. (laughs) I'm not going to read it all. You can borrow it later, though. Give yourself some three and a half minutes, and you can conquer this book. Hey, maybe, you know, take it slow. Maybe take it to five minutes. Don't worry, you can borrow it. I am going to spoil it, though. In the end, (laughs) the pout-pout fish does change his way of thinking. But for the majority of this story, he's stuck. He has one way of thinking, and nothing is going to change his mind. And he keeps refusing all of the friends that try to get him to change his thinking. In order for him to change his thinking, though, his whole world has to be turned upside down. Now, the pout-pout fish is a cute story. That's fun. But the reality is the pout-pout fish could be any of us. We get stuck in that blub, blub, blub way of life. Have you ever felt like you were powerless to change something in your life? I know I have. When Martin Luther King delivered a speech to the striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, he talked about power. And he said, power is the ability to achieve purpose. Power is the ability to affect change. Now that feeling of being powerless, powerless to change something in your life, is actually really dangerous. Because without the power to change, hopelessness sets in. And then we feel stuck. Now there are a wide variety of reasons that we get stuck. Losing a loved one can leave us feeling like we'll never feel joy again. Or maybe divorce has left our family in pieces. Maybe an illness or injury has robbed you of a future that you once thought you would have. We feel stuck in these cycles of disappointment and desperation. But the good news is you don't have to remain stuck. Life doesn't have to be that way. Have you ever noticed that some people have this natural ability to bounce back from difficulties? They go through certain things, and it doesn't seem to take them as long to come out of it. What is it about those people that allows them to bounce back from hardship? Psychologists actually began asking this question after World War II. 
Researchers tracked survivors of concentration camps years after the war was over, and they found that many survivors had a quality that helped them re-enter society and flourish. And psychologists have identified this quality. It's called resilience. Resilience is the ability to recover quickly from difficulties. Resilience is the ability to bounce back. I'm going to give you a little insight into who I am, <laughs> so buckle up. I love plants. I love green things. I love flowers. I love trees. I love all of it, but I should have no part in helping to cultivate it or helping to make it grow. I have <laughs> this wonderful plant that I've brought for show and tell. <laughs> I have tried to kill this plant on more than one occasion, not because I don't like it, simply because I just want to care for it in different ways than it wants to be cared for. So a year ago, the leaves had actually turned yellow, and they became uh, brown with different spots on them. So in my infinite wisdom, I decided, cut off those leaves, right? Because they, they look diseased, they look unhealthy. So I, you know, just cut them off. And then a couple days later, the plant turned brown and brittle. Still has a little bit of it right here. This whole thing turned brown. It looked like it had died, and I thought, okay, well, my work here is done. So <laughs> we're done here. Just another plant that I've killed in a long history of killing plants. I like to think I have a nurturing personality, but it does not extend to plants. I wish I did. So this plant, though, remained in the pot. I continued to water a brown and brittle plant that I honestly thought I had killed. <laughs> because that's who I am. So don't judge me. So I left it there. I continued to water it. And then a few months later, it actually started to sprout new leaves. And these new leaves, there's a new growth down there, and then on this side, they're actually green. They're healthy. They don't look as bad as the other ones. I thought this plant was done for, but it actually came back from the trauma that I had inflicted on it, and I brought it in for you today. <laughs> I don't want to kill it. However, it has recovered. Plants are pretty resilient. We live with plants all around us that are determined to grow even in difficult circumstances. I want to be like that. I want to be able to grow, but not just grow, thrive. Thrive in difficult circumstances. Don't you want that? And if you're a parent, don't you want that for your kids? Don't you want them to be able to come back from difficulties and hardships and to come back stronger and healthier than they were before? Just like plants, people are pretty resilient. The question, though, is how do we develop resilience in our life? Because if resilience was something that we were just born with, then we wouldn't be having this discussion. The good news is resiliency can be developed in our families and in our children. But first, we have to start with ourselves. Today, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And he's someone whose life was marked by amazing successes and some really deep humiliations. Pharaoh said there was no one as discerning and wise as Joseph in all of Egypt. And that's a pretty big deal, because for a large part of Joseph's life, he was stuck. Joseph was stuck 
in some unhealthy relationships in his family. I'm going to summarize 12 chapters. His brothers didn't like him, so they sold him into slavery. There you go. You're welcome. He was stuck in slavery. He was then stuck in someone's household and in an unhealthy situation. He was then put in prison for a number of years. Would Joseph have become a wise man if he didn't go through this period of time where he was stuck? I'm going to argue no. You're definitely able to disagree with me on that point. But I think because Joseph was stuck for a large part of his life, he actually became wise. Joseph's journey wasn't fast or easy, and it wasn't always fun. And in order to build resilience, we have to give up the idea that fast and easy is normal. Or rather, that fast and easy is the way that life should be. So I'm going to go back to plants for a second, because my history of killing plants has deep roots. Pun intended. In elementary school, there's always a unit on earth science. They give you a packet of seeds, and you have some squares of dirt. You plant those seeds in the dirt. You water them. You watch them grow. It's great. It's beautiful. Here's the deal, though. I would come into class every day, and I'd look at my dirt, and it looked like nothing was happening. On the surface, nothing had changed. Who likes to wait for things to grow? Especially if you're a second grader. Like, here, plant these things in this dirt and then wait. I'm not going to do that. So one day, I came into class, and I poked my finger in the soil, and I pulled out a seed. And it actually had a growth on it. It had started to grow, but it hadn't yet burst through the soil. So I got really excited, and I was like, yes! And I shoved it back into the dirt, and I was like, okay, tried to cover it up, and then walked away. Here's the thing, though. I wanted that seed to grow faster than nature allowed. And because I was impatient, that seed actually died. It didn't bear fruit. I had killed it by being impatient with the process that it needed to go through in order to grow. Thinking that everything should be fast and easy only sets us up for hopelessness to set in when the reality is things don't turn out to be fast and easy. Pharaoh is plagued by two dreams that he needed interpreted, and Joseph was called in to interpret those dreams. God revealed to Joseph that there would be seven years of great harvest, wealth, and prosperity, followed by seven years of famine. And so here's what Joseph told Pharaoh about his dream. He said, the next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. Therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it so that there will be food in the cities. That way, there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. 
Pharaoh then turned to Joseph. He said, great, you're going to be the person that does just that. No problem, right? Collect enough food to feed thousands of people for seven whole years. That's easy, right? You can do that fast, right? No problem. So last month, astronomers captured the first ever images of a black hole. Eight satellites set up around the globe, hundreds of disks worth of images, and people working on something that was previously considered invisible. Katie Bowman worked on the team that began processing the pictures that they had collected from last June. But she actually joined the team six years before that. Seven years of working on a team to come up with a way to capture and measure things that are invisible. Sounds easy, right? Seven years of working with thousands of images and people all across the globe to produce one still image. Her task when she joined the team was to come up with ways to see and measure things that are invisible. That whole process wasn't easy. What if her team had decided it was too time consuming or it was just too hard to come up with a way to see something that was invisible? What if Joseph, the man tasked with building storehouses and drawing in grain for seven years, had decided it was too much work? Resilient people say, this is tough, but I can get through it, and I'm going to stick with it. If we give up the idea that everything should be fast and easy, we also need to be developing hope. Now, we use hope in a wide variety of contexts. Hope is not wishful thinking. Let me give you an example. I hope I win a million dollars. I hope I walk outside my door and it just appears on my doorstep. That is wishful thinking. Hope is not wishful thinking. C.R. Snyder, he's a researcher at the University of Kansas, he actually describes hope as a way of thinking or a cognitive process. He says it's not an emotion at all. It's a choice. He says hope happens in three stages. One, when we set realistic goals. Two, when we figure out how to achieve those goals. And three, when we believe that we can actually do it. So what is Joseph's goal? To help people during the seven years of famine. What is his plan to achieve that goal? Build storehouses during the good years and bring in one-fifth of all the grain produced. Does he believe it can be done? Yes. I want you to think about a goal that you might have. Go through these three steps. Is it realistic? Do you know where you want to go? What is your next step? Can you come up with steps that will actually help you achieve that goal? Being resilient also requires flexibility. What if your next steps don't work out? What do you do? Being flexible means you look for alternative paths. You look for another way. A couple weeks ago was Holy Week. Stephanie Leedy, our children's director, and I, we had a goal. 
it's a big goal. We were going to build a tomb for our Easter family services. The only problem, and it was a big glaring problem, we had no idea how to build this tomb. None whatsoever. And we did learn a lot about ourselves through the process. I'm not going to say it was a total failure. I come from a family of engineers. However, I swim in the very shallow end of the gene pool when it comes to spatial awareness. It is not my gift. I'm not kidding. <laughs> there are some tears uh, when we were trying to figure out how to put this tomb together. Not ashamed to admit that. There was some heartache. We felt stuck. We also felt a little hopeless. Moving forward is really hard if you don't have the next step. In the end, though, we actually kept going. We didn't give up, and we did build that darn tomb. And someone last night, they told me that their neighbors came to that service, and they were so excited about the tomb. The first thing they said was, we got to go through the tomb, which made me feel so good because I, I, I wanted to scrap it. I was like, it's not really that important to the story of Easter, right? I mean, Jesus goes in the tomb, then he's not there. We can all imagine that in our heads, right? We don't actually physically have to go through the tomb. I was just rewriting the story a little because I didn't know how to build a tomb. Spatial awareness. So I'm going to um, ask for your help. If building things comes naturally to you, please, 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 sign up to help us build sets for church day camp <laughs> so that it's not a process of crying for three weeks. I would really appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, cool. We really wanted to give up on building that tomb. And it's a really silly example, but I'm sure you can come up with examples in your own life where you wanted to give up. You wanted to quit. You wanted to say, it's not that important. But you didn't give up. You kept going. That's what it takes to build a resilient spirit. For Christians, hope is built into our faith. It's not wishful thinking about the future. For Christians, hope is the certainty that despite living in a world that is fallen, God will one day complete the work that he has already started in the lives of believers and all of creation. God set a realistic goal. Draw people back to him. How did he achieve that goal? By sending his son into the world that through his death and resurrection, we would be reconciled to God. And the hope part of it is that we believe he actually did it. The author of Hebrews notes that hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Hope is also something we need to cling to when life gets chaotic. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. There's a story that started floating around on the internet after the 1988 Armenian earthquake. I couldn't confirm that this story was true. So in all honesty, I'm telling you that, full disclosure. However, I think it perfectly illustrates this idea of hope. In 1988, an earthquake hit Armenia, and more than 30,000 people were killed in a matter of minutes. After the quake, a father ran to his son's school, because that's where his son was at the time of the earthquake. 
When he arrived, he found that the building had been completely leveled. The father had once made a promise to his son, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. As he looked up at this pile of debris, his eyes filled with tears, and he felt hopeless. What could he possibly do? But he kept remembering the promise that he had made to his son. He started digging through the rubble. As he was digging, other heartbroken parents arrived, and they tried to pull the man away from the debris. They said, give up. There's nothing that you can do. Go home and face reality. The father responded to each person, won't you help me? And he continued to dig for his son, stone by stone. The fire chief tried to pull the man away, telling him that fires were breaking out all over the city. Explosions were happening everywhere. But the loving, caring father responded, won't you help me? The father dug for eight hours, 12 hours. 24 hours, 36 hours. Then in the 40th hour, he pulled back a boulder and heard his son's voice. And there were 13 other children in that location with his son. When the building collapsed, it created a triangle, like a wedge that saved their lives. And sitting in the dark, his son told the other kids not to worry. He told them that if his dad was alive, his dad would come to save them. His father had made a promise that no matter what, he would be with him always. This little boy trusted in his father's promise. While sitting in the darkness, he had hope, knowing his dad was going to come rescue him. God can be trusted to keep his promises. Developing hope means that while living in the dark, we know that God has already organized the search party. There's a couple things that sabotage resilience. Thinking everything should be fast and easy is one. Living a life without hope is another. But feeling disconnected is actually the final punch. Last May, Cigna and UCLA released a report on loneliness across generational lines. What they learned was that Generation Z, people who are between 18 and 22, had the highest levels of loneliness. This was followed by millennials, people between the ages of 23 and 37. Loneliness contributes to higher rates of anxiety and depression as well as health concerns like blood pressure, heart disease, and obesity. And it affects all people of all ages. Researchers are now turning their attention to Generation Alpha, the group of children that are born to millennials. And they're asking this question, will this generation take on the same loneliness as their parents? I'm a millennial. Nice to meet you. Will my children inherit loneliness as a normal part of life? I don't want that. Do you want that for your kids? I don't think any of us wants that. In the same report by Cigna, though, there is a bright spot. They did learn that people who engage in frequent, meaningful, in-person relationships 
have much lower levels of loneliness and issues of health. Frequent, meaningful, in-person interactions. Do you want to raise resilient kids? You want to be a resilient person? Dig into deep, meaningful relationships. Get connected. Hope and connection actually go hand in hand. So we're going to go back to the passage that we looked at from Hebrews, and I want to continue on with it. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Let us not neglect our meeting together. The author of Hebrews is really excited about Christian community. During a time when Christians were persecuted, they could be put to death. Meeting together would have actually been really dangerous, and yet the person writing this letter is saying that is the very thing we need to do. The author of Hebrews doesn't need a whole history of research on loneliness to know that meeting together, being a community together, is really important for life. It's not just good for our own personal growth and our health. It's also good for our spiritual growth. C.R. Snyder, the researcher that we we looked at earlier that gave us the three stages of hope, he went on to make an observation about children. He said, children most often learn hope from their parents. In order to learn hopefulness, children need relationships, relationships that are characterized by boundaries, consistency, and support. I'm going to read that one more time. Children most often learn hope from their parents. In order to learn hopefulness, Children need relationships that are characterized by boundaries, consistency, and support. Now, that's either really encouraging, because it tells us that children can be taught hope, or it's totally terrifying, because it means we need to set boundaries and be consistent. Either way, children are learning hope, and they're developing hope in relationship and in relationship with you. Throughout Joseph's story, one thing keeps coming up. No matter what happens to him, no matter where he goes, the Lord is with him. Joseph was stuck in a foreign land. Joseph was stuck in slavery. He was stuck in prison. But he wasn't disconnected. We would think all of those circumstances in his life would leave him feeling disconnected, but he wasn't. Because Joseph was connected to God. 